You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we talk about pseudoscience. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Lauren Bailey. Hello. We're also testing a new mic setup, so if it sounds weird, sorry, hopefully it sounds better. It'll sound better for sure next time? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have a few, a few more mics coming in the mail. So today we are talking about pseudoscience. I thought uh, to start off, we probably don't need to recap for most of our listeners what, what we mean when we say pseudoscience, but uh, in case we have any newcomers in the audience, a pseudoscience is a pseudo science. It's, it is a non-science masquerading as a science. So people who believe weird things tend to like to bolster those ideas that are unsupported by evidence with sciency sounding language or sciency sounding studies. Like energy. Yeah, so energy is a is a a good example, or quantum, or um, clinically tested, <laughs> right? And of course, the fact that something is clinically tested does not mean that uh, the results were statistically significant, or that the uh, study design was any good. <laughs> Some examples of pseudoscience that we have talked about in the past include parapsychology. Uh, we've talked about homeopathy in the past. We have talked about all sorts of alternative medical practices. Chiropractic. Uh, chiropractic is an example of a pseudoscience. And uh, there are also um, examples of pseudosciences that you can find where their practitioners have spoken out about the pseudoscientific aspects of their practice and have tried to move them in the direction of science. So you have some reform chiropractors who are trying to reform their uh, practice. Trying to align it with the medical community? <laughs> yeah. In some cases, conspiracy theories can qualify as pseudosciences because they tend to defend their ideas with a sciencey sounding language. So an example that we have talked about uh, in the relatively recent past is the claim that the moon landings are hoaxed. And I actually watched a really funny video from a YouTuber I quite like called H-Bomber Guy, who talked about the flat earth conspiracy theory. They so, come up with so much science to defend the flat earth thing. <laughs> like they have to invent whole new realms of science. It, it's magnificent. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll post a link in the, uh, in the show notes. <laughs> but for today, we're talking about three pseudosciences in particular. Ashlyn is going to start us off with flower remedies. Then Lauren and Laura are going to tag team a segment about feng shui. And then I'll finish us off talking about the topic that I've wanted to talk about for a long time because it is oh so silly, iridology. Used and recommended often by the people of the internet, Rescue Remedy comes in a cute bottle with a nice dropper. Place a couple of drops on the tongue to solve everything. You can give it to your kids for any boo-boo or just because they're upset and need to calm down. Give it to your horses if they're too jittery or too lethargic. 
your dogs and cats if they're injured or if you're moving and they need to be acclimated to the new place. Give it to your gerbils if they seem to be out of sorts. Heck, take it yourself for road rage or feelings of despair. (laughs) There may be no situation in which rescue remedy is inappropriate. I wish I had some right now because I am feeling some despair. (laughs) Do you apply it directly to the forehead? (laughs) (laughs) No. I already said, place a couple of drops on the tongue. It also comes in a handy spray, although I did find some instructions that allow you to put some of it behind your ears. That's also fine. Sure, whatever. Sounds like a great cologne. (laughs) So Rescue Remedy contains five flower essences. Rock Rose, which is said to alleviate terror and panic. Impatience, to mollify irritations and impatience. Clematis, to combat inattentiveness. Star of Bethlehem, to ease shock. And Cherry Plum, to calm irrational thoughts. Oh, and Brandy. Rescue Remedy is mostly Brandy, like any good (laughs) patent medicine. (laughs) So these flower essences and their supposed qualities come from Bach Flower Remedies, where apparently the preferred pronunciation is Batch Flower Remedies, but it is spelled like the composer. Johann Sebastian Batch. Batch. Uh, And Rescue Remedy is the most popular and well-known remedy or blend of remedies out of all of these flower remedies. Uh, The website for Batch Flower Remedies states that, quote, The original Batch Flower Remedies is a safe and natural method of healing discovered by Dr. Batch from 1920 to 1930s in England. They gently restore the balance between mind and body by casting out negative emotions such as fear, worry, hatred, and indecision, which interfere with the equilibrium of the being as a whole. The dark side of the force I made. (laughs) These flower remedies are very akin to homeopathy. In fact, Batch was trained as a homeopath, and he also created some nosodes, the homeopathic answer to vaccines, before going on to create this new branch of pseudoscience. The original remedies were created when Batch would hold his hand over various flowers and plants to see which ones affected his moods and emotional state. My whole, my favorite part of this whole thing is that he held his hand over various flowers to see which one felt good. Which one alleviated his terror. <laughs> yeah, right? So he would then use the dew from that flower to create a remedy. And the, not even the f***ing flower itself, the dew from the flower would be the remedy. Uh, he believed that the cause of all disease was emotional turmoil and imbalance, so by solving people's feelings, he could fix everything. Nowadays, the flowers are picked and placed in water, which is then strained and preserved with brandy, typically one-to-one water to brandy. This is the mother tincture, which is then diluted further to make the remedies, often only a couple of drops per 30 ml bottle of remedy. Uh, So that results in pretty much no chance that any molecules of the actual flower end up in your remedy since they aren't steeped or crushed or anything. They're just literally placed in the water. But that's okay. Because what you really need in your remedy is the flower energy, which is extracted by (laughs) dunking the flower briefly in water. The flower power, if you will. (laughs) Laura was leaning in to make the exact same joke. I won't. (laughs) Friend of the podcast, Edzard Ernst, I wish conducted a review of all randomized controlled trials he could find up until May of 2010 when it was published, and he found seven of them, including one where there was no placebo group, and concluded that randomized controlled trials using flower remedies were possible, but that, quote, collectively they failed to produce convincing evidence to suggest that flower remedies are associated with clinical effects that differ from those of a placebo. So I wanted to tell you about some of the most ridiculous uh, remedies that I found. He decided that his 
remedy collection was complete once he got to 28. There's no indication about why he decided that it was done. Maybe he just, like, covered all of the feelings he could think of. That's, <laughs> that's my theory. So, some of my favorite ones that we came across include Hornbeam. This is to be used for, uh, in humans, for weariness, mental rather than physical, the Monday morning feeling with a sense of staleness and lack of variety in life, lack of motivation. This is supposed to be used for inhumans, like Black Bolt and Medusa? <laughs> inhumans, the indications are. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> in animals, you can use it for lethargy or lack of enthusiasm to go anywhere, but once engaged in an activity or game is fully involved. Uh, gorse? can be used for hopelessness, despair, and pessimism. Great for our Newman. <laughs> yeah, gotta try this. Um, so in human, you must use it when you have the feeling of extreme hopelessness and despair. In animals, uh, use it when they have a feeling of hopeless despair. <laughs> How? How do you know? <laughs> uh, scleranthus. Sounds like a villain from the Dark Crystal. <laughs> these, are all, these are all plant names. I recognize them all. Um, here's a quote directly from uh, Dr. Edward Batch. We actually still have the book of like remedies that Dr. Batch made himself, and they are available online, so you can get quotes from them pretty readily. Uh, so it's Clarenthus, quote, Those who suffer much from being unable to decide between two things, first one seeming right, then the other, they are usually quiet people and bear their difficulty alone as they are not inclined to discuss it with others. So, in humans, you should use scleranthus when you suffer from indecision, particularly when faced with two choices. I've never been more stressed out in my entire life. In animals, animals who can't make up their mind, any swinging behavior pattern. So, for example, if they eat and then don't eat, or sleep a lot, or don't sleep. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's when you should use this. So, like, constantly or never? Yes. Like, every cat ever needs that. You should just always use this. I mean, you just need to dunk a flower in water, so it's not expensive. You can get really cheap brandy at the border. We've learned that. Does it have to be brandy, though? So I think you can use other preservatives, but it seems like every company who makes it uses brandy. That seems expensive. Like, yeah. Like standard straight up grain alcohol would be way cheaper. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. But less fun to drink. So walnut. Uh, again, a quote from Dr. Edward Batch. For those who have definite ideals and ambitions in life and are fulfilling them, but on rare occasions are tempted to be led away from their own ideas, aims, and work by the enthusiasm, convictions, or strong opinions of others, the remedy gives constancy and protection from outside influences. <laughs> so this is for if you never want to be distracted ever. Wow, or I need you, some of that. If you don't want to find other ideas persuasive. <laughs> so a human indication... Protection from outside influences and energies helps you adjust to major changes. Walnuts. So the only advantage of this remedy that I could find, much like homeopathy, is that because there's basically nothing to it, it's almost impossible for it to cause allergic reactions or adverse effects. From Batch himself once more. The essences do not contain any material substance deriving from the flowers. Thus, they contain no allergens. They contain only the energetic information of the flower. Yay, information energy. <laughs> This is basically like homeopathy for very lazy people. <laughs> so the ones that I found were clearly labeled that they contained grape alcohol, which is how they refer to brandy. It is a grape-based <laughs> alcohol. Uh, but I do know that reading the comments on some skeptical articles, it seems like a lot of parents were surprised that this stuff is basically 30% alcohol. So it's possible that like an allergy to alcohol could be a problem if you're not sure what you're giving your kids. 
Because there are people who have like a definite allergy to just like ethanol. But obviously the greatest threat from these is that they might prevent people from getting actual medical treatment, which is a problem that is common to most medical pseudosciences. Mm -hmm. If you advocate for doing things that are not going to heal you, sometimes you will not go get regular treatment and that could cause your early demise. Death by flowers. So those are flower remedies, and I bet we all know 10 people who have a bottle of rescue remedy in their house because it's just constantly recommended by, like, everything everywhere. It was recommended by our veterinarian when we had uh, trouble with our previous set of cats, and I looked it up, and I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially with, with the vets, like price tag on it definitely not (laughs) but honestly that was the first time i'd ever heard of it i think i've only really seen it advertised one or two other times like it's really not something that i was aware of outside of that if you talk on like any facebook group about my cat is acting weird people will be like give it rescue remedy One of my favorite comments that I read on, I think it was the science-based medicine article about flower remedies, was that, so this guy's wife would just give their kids rescue remedy whenever they came crying, and they would just open their mouths and get a couple drops of brandy, and then they'd be fine. (laughs) And uh, he decided to run a quote-unquote test and uh, propose an alternative remedy, which was he held them and sang the rubber ducky song. And eventually they became so used to this that they would just like come to him crying and be like, I need a rubber ducky. (laughs) (laughs) He said it was 100% effective. So it basically, as long as you give your children attention for three minutes when they are feeling upset, it seems like that remedy will work. Yeah. Parents, any any insight on this? No, that's uh, absolutely. That's true. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing as anytime Huxley hurts himself, he comes running up to us holding or holding out whatever appendage he hurt or pointing the part. And he just wants a kiss and then he runs off and goes, but he just needs that kiss and then then he's done. It's reassurance. Next up, Lauren and Laura are going to be telling us all about feng shui. For the first time ever, we didn't tell each other our segments before we wrote them. So here we are, and we got, to the, we got to the recording tonight, and both Laura and I said, oh, I'm doing feng shui. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was awesome. So we're just going to tag team this one. But it is a broad topic. You know, I had to stop myself constantly from falling down all sorts of rabbit holes. So there's a lot to talk about. So I think it's good that we both are covering it. There are 30 different active schools. Oh, wow. You looked into that. I just looked into the the broad schools and said, let's call it a day. <laughs> oh, I counted. I didn't look into them. <laughs> when I first moved to Winnipeg in the late 1990s, it was the first time in my life that I had unlimited access to cable television and all of the zombifying joy that is a multi-hour block of home decor shows. Ooh. And that's where I found out about feng shui. How about you? I'm sure it was something like that. I can't remember when it was. It was something that at some point started seeping into my consciousness, into my periphery, and then it was just one of those things that, oh, you should do this, you know, pay attention to the feng shui. I never really did, but it was one of those things that if you were a good decorator, you're good at orienting spaces, you should do that. Then I kind of forgot about it and that. And then later on, as I got into the skeptical movement, it's like, oh, what is this exactly? You know, it was just one of those things that I never really questioned because I never really paid attention to it. Yeah, for me, it was Lori from Trading Spaces going, you should really, you know, do this to make the feng shui in the room really pop. 
<laughs> what? I don't think that's something that you actually want the feng shui to do. <laughs> Depends on the school of thought. <laughs> okay. They have been studying it for over 6,000 years. It's true. It's a true story. But according to Bishop Usher, that's longer than the world has been around. Yep, some sources will say that uh, Neolithic China, they've found tombs and buildings oriented mm -hmm. in such a fashion that would make it consistent with the practice. Yeah, it was mostly used for home or tomb placements. Yeah. Modern feng shui relies on the magnetic compass, but in pre-compass China, it appears to have relied on astronomy to line up a structure in the best way possible to provide good chi and fortune. Mm-hmm. Some of the sources I read said that the compass was actually developed for this purpose. We actually talked about the development of the compass on a past episode, and it was indeed developed originally in China. Yeah, for use in feng shui, and it was later ported to navigation. So I guess pseudoscience has a use after all, <laughs> or has contributed something to society. The term feng shui translates as wind water in English. Practitioners claim that it helps them use energy forces to harmonize individuals with their surrounding environments. All of this is bunk, of course. <laughs> the Earth doesn't have energy deposits that can bring good fortune to your life if you line them up like jackpots on a slot machine. How come fire got shafted? It's in there, but wind water is just how it's called. Mm -hmm. We haven't got to the elements yet. So qi is essentially what we're trying to manipulate with feng shui. I think a lot of people have heard of qi, but they don't really know what it is. So feng shui is, like Lauren said, about um, aligning and balancing energy, and that energy is called qi. This type of energy, though, isn't the type of energy that's in atoms or molecules or the universe. It's not uh, the energy the way physics defines it as the capacity for a system to perform work. Right, right. And some proponents and adherents of feng shui will, will agree with that and say, no, it's not that type of energy. It's sort of a vital force, they call it. So the closest things in Western cultures would be something like that vitalism or, or something like that, that there's this vital force that goes in all of us. I don't know. I watched a lot of Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, growing up, and I remember Kwai Chang Kane always, like, making motions with his hands and then the leaves would rustle. So it does seem to have some capacity to do work. Then again, you know, David Carradine's a white guy. He doesn't know chi from... Well, and depending on how you look at the chi and how adherent you are, some people will say that chi is actually us. So we are one manifestation of chi. So chi becomes people and becomes things. So we are not... It is not just the energy that goes through us, but it literally makes us. And so that's really interesting when you think about how, about how important chi and feng shui is in, in burials. Basically, because this chi goes through all of us and we want good fortunes, we, we're trying to move this energy in a very positive way. So chi is always flowing. It's always moving. That's the thing. It's not just static. It's always moving around. There are areas or, or ways that it moves better or worse. And so you're trying to have positive flow and balancing out of the different aspects of life with your chi. So what we're trying to do is line up all of these energies in our lives like sevens on a slot machine. Yeah, 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 pretty much. So, and, and it's very clear that you need all of these different energies, but they have to be in balance. So you have this chi that affects us now, and it also affects us in 
the future in our progeny and that, and those effects come from our past in our ancestors. So, for example, some people will believe that if you die and you're buried in an inauspicious place, then that will affect your progeny. And because your progeny is linked to you through your genetics and DNA, your progeny will have negative outcomes in life because of your poor burial. So we're looking at it like systemic poverty in the United States. Yeah, yeah, something like that, essentially. Systemic poverty of chi. <laughs> poverty? <laughs> if these magical configurations existed, why haven't the rest of the world caught on and laid out like countries and towns and neighborhoods to best take advantage of this untapped source of world power? Is this another thing that these rich are keeping from us? That's why there's landlords. <laughs> Well, depending on, you know, I, I stumbled across a website for a feng shui practitioner that was basically stating that all good things happen because people practiced good feng shui and had good chi and all bad things happen because they didn't practice good feng shui and good chi. And, and that's what allowed people to maintain power and things like that. That has some pretty disgusting blame the victims implications. Yeah. It was bad. It was, you know, his example was Mao Zedong. <laughs> now you're all listening. <laughs> Mao Zedong uh, buried his father in a very auspicious place that had very tremendous chi. And that's what gave him the power to rule the Communist Party for 40 years. But then why was Feng Shui outlawed during the People's Revolution? Because he had to hoard it for himself. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He was practicing secret feng shui. <laughs> yeah, something like that. But this website did also go on to say things like, have you noticed how some families everyone is doing well and is prosperous and in other families everyone is sick and not doing well? Have you noticed how some families have genetic issues? It's the chi. <laughs> like, what? Oh, oh my goodness. That's a huge arrow pointing towards it being a pseudoscience. Yeah, one of the hallmarks of a pseudoscience is always explain every single thing that happens with this one thing. Yeah, and that's pretty much what chi is when it comes down to it. So chi flows in certain ways, but there are other principles that we need to keep in mind. One of the big concepts is the, the polarity concept. Most people have heard of yin and yang. When I was young, I used to think it was yin yang because yep. I was nine and white and didn't know better. Anyway, yin and yang. So it is positive and negative forces that oppose each other, but also complement each other. They can't exist separately. They must exist in balance. And then there's also the five elements, which we mentioned earlier. So the five elements are metal, earth, water, wood, and fire. By your powers combined, I am Captain Planet! And if we don't think of it the same way as in physical wood or physical metal, but it's the properties thereof or the aspects and sometimes even the colors. To balance this polarity, you use the five different elements in balance and the elements are cyclical and they work together. So something like water will put out fire, but fire will melt, uh, will burn wood and wood will blah, blah, blah. And it goes on like that. So there's different cycles for these different things. The Rochambeau of the elements. Yes, essentially. So that's the form school, which was one of the ancient schools mm -hmm. of Feng Shui. And the other was the compass school. So the form school, which analyzes the shape of the land and these five elements that Laura was talking about, also analyzes the five celestial animals and yin-yang. The compass school, 
is based on eight cardinal directions. That's where you're going to see the like feng shui calendars. The Bagua charts. That's the other big principle in there. That mm-hmm. that is, And that's the one that's most common to people outside of Asia, because that is what's really taken hold here. I've never even heard the term Bagua. I hadn't either. When I saw the charts, I was like, I think I've seen those kinds of things before. And they're actually really common. So, for example, Gemini went to Singapore 10 years ago. And on their $1? Is it dollar? I don't remember. On their their one-unit coin, they have a bagua. There's a giant one etched into the ground in Beijing. That makes sense. They're, They're really common. Most modern practitioners just kind of pull back and forth from these two schools. And there's also a healthy portion from these smaller splinter schools. These practitioners claim that it all still works. So who is right? What is right? What is love? Science generally doesn't work like picking dishes in a cafeteria. Concepts are proposed, tested, retested, tested another way, and finally, maybe, said to hold some validity. One cannot say that gravity works using the Warner Brothers method and then refuse to test it and share the results. (laughs) Which is what we're getting a lot of here in feng shui practitioners. Although, there are a fair number of practitioners that do want to make it a science. In my research, I came across something called the Feng Shui Society. Uh, It is based in the UK, and it is a society, a professional society for feng shui practitioners. And they do say that, you know, right now, feng shui can't be characterized as a science because it doesn't have theories the same way. It can't answer certain questions, but they want to change that. They want to make it more scientific. I like the fact that on their uh, webpage, the the big image on the About Us section appears to be somebody holding like a ghostometer. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a tri-field meter and it's all about testing magnetic fields and electric and radio ranges. I've always found it fascinating how pseudosciences like take each other's technology and use each other's weird technology to do their own batshit stuff. It is pretty funny how they all just, they stay in that realm, though. They can't go in too far into mainstream or actual science. They have to just keep using ghostometers and and whatnot. The Feng Shui Society, as a professional society, thinks that it's their duty to add to the scientific knowledge. So they're currently trying to pursue Feng Shui research. And the areas of interest include a description of Feng Shui, That would be helpful. You need to know what it is. So if they don't already know what it is, this is a problem. Something Uh, different for every person, though. I know. Um, An understanding and explanation of how feng shui works. I'm looking forward to that one. An evaluation of different feng shui schools and methods. So, you know, maybe we will actually get an answer to which school is the best. Because right now, like you say, everybody's just kind of like, no, whatever you've been doing, that's fine. Applications of feng shui. So where would it be best applied? And not only proof, alternative ways of looking at feng shui. I'm not sure what that means. I think it means if this whole science thing doesn't work out, well, you know, we tried. Maybe there's something else. So most of that page is just a request for funding for this research. Do they have any way that they're going to talk about the moving magnetism problem with feng shui? I don't think they address that at all. These are, you know, people in the UK from my guess is varying backgrounds. So I'm not even sure. I doubt they're even using the compass method <laughs> Okay, would be my guess. So I did, I, I looked a little bit. There is a relatively recently established academic journal of feng shui that is all about publishing scientific papers. 
Uh, it has published three papers in the last two years. <laughs> I'm really glad you did this research because I just looked at Wikipedia. <laughs> So, you know, it's research is a little slow, but but that's okay, right? Right? It's an entire journal that has published three articles in two years. Yeah. Yeah, like not even three issues, three articles <laughs> that I could find. I'm really glad for their sakes that the web exists and they don't have to put out paper copies of this kind of thing. Yeah, no kidding. Anyway, this, this site, the Feng Shui Society, sorry, back to that, even though they don't have published, peer-reviewed research, um, they do list some case studies for applications of feng shui. I'll just let you read this. There are countless case studies from both residential and corporate clients who have used feng shui to improve their lives and business. Here are some typical examples. Okay, so there's countless case studies, all right? No results found. <laughs> the page you requested could not be found. So there's like there's like an embedded search or something in in this page like that's supposed to display the entire contents of you know whatever I don't know what uh, uh, content management system they're using but whatever it is they screwed it up it just says no results found you can't put countless in your previous statement and have no results found well, well Laura can you count to zero I don't think so that makes it countless. Minus two, minus one, zero. <laughs> Shit, she got me. <laughs> so that's that's a little bit of unfair fun at, at this website there. But it was just, it was so appropriately placed, I thought. I couldn't not. As an aside, how come so many wacky ideas have horrible web design or web maintenance program? Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's really interesting. I, I often find that the practitioners themselves, like there's a lot of, at least in the nutrition world, there's a lot of nutritionists, see my air quotes, um, that have really amazing and super modern and um, trendy websites that really draw you in. So they're really good at that. But looking at greater bits of info sometimes is just terrible. So I guess it maybe just depends where the money is. Yeah, so research, there is nothing conclusive, um, and uh, we can't even find some case studies. <laughs> I'll just hop in with a fun fact. As I had said before, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, feng shui was derided and seen as backwards, mm -hmm. and it was outlawed in some places in China. And in modern China, it is still illegal to register a feng shui consultancy business. Yeah, it is, actually. They don't persecute them as much as they did before, but you can't you can't call yourself feng shui. That doesn't mean that it isn't still part of things. Like, this is, from what I gather, this is just a typical part of architecture and structure and, and all of that. Whether people really believe in qi or not, like, I, I, I can't assess. I don't know how much, but this is just how you do things in a lot of places. And so China itself... Um, they had a lot of persecution, but it was never persecuted in places like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Korea, Japan, Singapore, a lot of the neighboring countries. So it stayed popular and um, obvious there. And nowadays it's just like hanging mirrors in the doorway to scare away the evil spirits. Yeah. Um, but that's the Western use mm -hmm. of it. You know, traditionalists who are from countries where feng shui is from uh, will say that that's not how it's done. Even the use of the baguas, um, the way that it's often done on things like trading spaces, and that is not considered a typical way of doing it. My favorite feng shui 
tidbit that I've heard is you do not put the cooking source of your house against a wall that has the toilet in the house. So if your kitchen and bathroom are adjoining, do not put the stove against the the same wall that has the, the toilet on it. Oh. Because the water and the fire cancel each other out and make for, like, a cheese storm. So... (laughs) (laughs) I think I saw that movie. (laughs) So, but the water in your kitchen sink or your dishwasher doesn't cancel out the fire? They're not usually, like, sharing the the wall back-to-back with the stove. But what if your dishwasher is beside your oven, which ours used to be? It's not a science, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) But that just doesn't... Why is it, like, with a physical wall in between, that is more of an issue, but when it's, like, facing each other four feet apart, that is less than an issue? Or, like, beside each other with no physical wall? I don't know. pipes are touching? I don't don't know. know. Okay. Yeah, I didn't get into that that much. And there's a lot of different things uh, that you can go with like that. And, yeah, there's not a lot of consensus on it. Back in, I believe it was 2009, Penn and Teller did an episode of their show Bullshit about this. And um, for anybody who's not familiar, they invited five different feng shui practitioners into the same room, didn't alter it, and waited to see what was suggested. And kind of as we would expect, there were five different suggestions of where to orient things, where to place things, and like that. You know, that's not a scientific study at all either. It's just one way of doing it. But this is pretty common in that whole, do what you feel, well, sort may- of approach. Maybe the, you know, magnetic poles were moving really fast in between when when all these different practitioners came into the room. So, you know, the magnetic poles drift a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're experiencing one of those chi storms. Another thing that I wanted to point out about how feng shui is used differently. Um, we mentioned about the baguas and the bagua charts. There are all sorts of different kinds of these, like there's different schools of of feng shui and different schools will use different bagua charts. There is one particular bagua chart that is used in the West, though. So we've really honed in on one. We generally use uh, the bagua of the eight aspirations. So a lot of the bagua charts are things like the names of the elements or directions or Um, a variety of positive and negative emotional states or states of being and things like that. We have honed in on the Bagua of the Eight Aspirations. So it is all generally positive types of things. And so it's things like fame, fortune, family, good health, those types of things. It's very positive. Whereas a lot of the other Baguas will have either more neutral things that have positive and negative aspects of each So you get that polarity there. And I think that's a very Western thing to do. And it really goes along with the whole taking something, making it new agey, and then trying to sell it to people for lots of money to make them happier or feel better or like guarantee success in life, right? You just go around this bagua and everything is a good thing and and like that. So I thought that was interesting and a very Western thing to do. If we spin the wheel this way, you'll get fortune. If we spin the wheel this way, you'll get fame. Right. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, no. In the Western part of the world, um, we tend tend to use it mostly for decorating purposes. So it is still used for orientation of, of certain um, significant sites in, in parts of Asia, but not here. We use it mainly for which color should I paint this wall and where should I hang that mirror and things like that. So it's not really... And somehow... The theory is that, yeah, by painting this wall orange instead of blue and by 
putting something soft and earth-toned over this large wall that is in front of my doorway, that will bring me good health and fortune. It makes me feel kind of ashamed that I really like the shape of horseshoe chairs, because those are the ones that will bring the most luck. Yeah, but I mean, none of this is... None of this is anything. And I mean, when they talk about effectiveness, they really, none of the sites that I found really explain what effectiveness is. That So you're going to be a movie star? Are, are you going to be the w- richest person? Well, we can't all be the richest person. You know, what does that mean in terms of being effective? How will you know if it's effective or not? Especially if these, some of these things are things that you know, 40 years from now, you're going to look back and look in hindsight and say, oh, that was because my chi was good or that was because my chi was bad. You can't know if your space is effective like that. So like, I'm curious if every single person in the United States, for example, happened to start practicing good feng shui and aligned all of their couches to fame and fortune or whatever, would suddenly no celebrities exist anywhere else and everybody in the United States would be equally famous somehow? <laughs> or uh, if they aligned them all to fortune, would the rest of the world economy collapse? Have you not been paying attention to reality TV? Everyone's a star. <laughs> well, I guess it must work then. We all have our ways of doing things that are ingrained in us, in our families, and in just in our greater cultures and societies in which we exist. And sometimes we know why that is, and sometimes we don't know. We just do it that way. And maybe there's lots of those kinds of things where we used to believe in something and we don't, but we just keep doing it that way. And that's our cultural style. And that's fine, right? So if you want to look at it that way, it's it's totally fine. But she doesn't exist, You know, it just doesn't. So without the chi, it's all kind of meaningless unless you're looking at it aesthetically. It's very much like with the original form of chiropractic. Without subluxations, what is it, right? It's just Mm -hmm. kind of cracking a back and hoping to make somebody feel better. Well, feng shui is kind of like that, but for your living or maybe dying spaces, right? Especially in the living spaces, One that is well-organized, one that works with you is likely to help you feel calmer and to help you be more productive in your own space and uh, feel freer to do other things. Whereas one that was poorly organized or or lacking things is probably not going to support you in that. Yeah, it's pretty innocuous. It really is. I mean, there, there are times where feng shui practitioners have convinced people to spend absurd amount of money on certain objects and, and certain types of buildings that they really didn't need. But then you have to wonder, well, you know, is that really, did they really need that rock or that whatever it was? Or was that just them trying to make a quick buck? Because, I mean, those people exist in every culture, in every place, at every time. We're going to end today's show with a little chat about iridology. So what is iridology? Well, it's the alternative medicine diagnostic technique that diagnoses medical and psychological conditions based solely on the inspection of the eye. Specifically, iridologists concern themselves with the colors and striations of the iris, uh, which is the pigmented area of the eye that surrounds the pupil and is itself surrounded by the white sclera. In North America, iridology is most commonly practiced by chiropractors and naturopaths. While some practitioners claim that specific diseases or even physical injuries to specific body parts can be identified by examining the iris, others limit themselves to more general claims about organ systems and systematic health, 
a gambit that allows uh, alternative medical practitioners of all stripes to avoid specifics and thus avoid obvious mistakes. Edzard Ernst uh, mentioned earlier in the show is in podcast yeah if only (laughs) is an academic physician who was originally trained in homeopathy and is now an expert in the study of complementary and alternative medicine his january 2000 article in jama ophthalmology which i'll link to in the show notes provides a useful sketch of the state of the medical evidence uh to begin here's how he describes the practice of iridology quote Iridology, developed more than 100 years ago, is the diagnosis of medical conditions through noting irregularities in the pigmentation in the iris. Iridology assumes that all bodily organs are represented on the surface of the iris via intricate neural connections, and that dysfunction of most organs is marked on the iris, usually as a pigmentary change. The right half of the body is represented in the right iris, the left half in the left iris, Iridologists refer to maps of the iris, on which each iris is divided into 60 sectors, much like the face of a clock, and each segment is related to an inner organ or bodily function. Heart diseases, for instance, are thus identified in the left iris somewhere between the 2 and 3 o'clock positions. Iridologists study the iris in situ, or they produce high-quality photographs of both irides. Wow! What would be... The mechanism of how that would even develop, though. Well, the way that iridologists map segments of the iris to other parts of the body uh, might remind you of, like, palmistry or uh, reflexology. Reflexology, yeah, it's exactly like reflexology, just a different body part. Though, thankfully, I think few iridologists would go so far as to massage patients' (laughs) eyeballs to provide relief. Look, I haven't been able to get anybody to tell me what's wrong with my eye, so if an iridologist can figure it out, I will go to one. Never trust them. (laughs) (laughs) They don't actually study the eye. Yeah, the eye is just the window to everything else in the body. What position is eye problem in? (laughs) That's a good question. I want to (laughs) know. I think it should be at like noon. It should be right at the top. Yeah, like, is there a foot part on the reflexology chart? (laughs) That's a good question. That's also a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Which part of the foot represents the foot? (laughs) So which which part of my foot maps to the big toe? Is it the heel? <laughs> it's kind of like just past one o'clock is the eye. <laughs> <laughs> it's weirdly arbitrary, but I guess it you, know, you got to go with something. So let's uh, let's talk about the history of iridology uh, briefly. Well, briefly for me. Two 19th century doctors are credited as the fathers of iridology. The first is Ignaz von Pecheli, a Hungarian physician who, the obviously apocryphal story goes, noticed that the eyes of a man he was treating for a broken leg had similar streaks to those of an owl whose leg the physician had broken many years before. Why the good doctor remembered the eyes of this owl so clearly is a fair question, though I'm more worried about what he was doing going around assaulting owls in the first place. The second father of iridology is Niels Liljekvist, a Swedish homeopath who began to notice changes in pigmentation of his irides after taking quinine and iodine to treat an outgrowth in his lymph nodes. His groundbreaking paper on the subject was titled Quinine and Iodine Change the Color of the Iris. I formerly had blue eyes and they are now a greenish color with reddish spots. Oh no! (laughs) That is amazing. I can't believe there's a paper attached to it. Like, normally that's just the statement. Yeah, Yeah, well, what is the paper? See title of paper. (laughs) 
This observation led him to publish an atlas in 1893 containing hundreds of illustrations providing guidance for eye-based diagnosis. So, does it work? Unfortunately, the fact that iridology has two dads isn't enough to make this medical technique modern. You didn't let us guess. It's a, it's a joke um (laughs) we don't want this as a queer representation though it's bad (laughs) uh yeah so uh the 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 answer is no there don't seem to be many medical researchers who are throwing away their grant money on iridology these days but a 1979 investigation by simon et al published in the journal of the american medical association investigated iridologists claims that they could detect kidney disease Three iridologists and three ophthalmologists were presented with photographic slides showing the irides of 143 patients, 48 of whom were suffering from severe kidney disease, and 95 of whom were controls. I will quote from the results. Iridology had no clinical or statistically significant ability to detect the presence of kidney disease. Iridology was neither selective nor specific and the likelihood of correct detection was statistically no better than chance. A study by Paul Nipschild, published in the December 1988 edition of the British Medical Journal, tested the ability of five iridologists, one of whom uh, was identified as a preeminent expert in the field, to identify gallbladder disease. According to Nipschild, this condition was chosen because the iridologists claimed that it was impossible to overlook. Nipschild presented the iridologists with stereographic color slides of the irides of 39 gallbladder patients and 39 matched controls. How accurate do you think the iridologists were? Uh, How likely uh, was it that they could tell whether someone had gallbladder disease? Any guesses? 100%. I'm afraid it was slightly lower. One (laughs) dollar. 51%, with uh, no statistical significance, obviously. Uh, it was a coin flip. Oh, okay. So I was not 100% paying attention. I thought you were asking how often they thought they could diagnose it correctly. Oh, no, 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 no. How often did the study show that they could diagnose well, it? Well, I feel silly now. They thought it was 100%. Yeah. Finally, a 1996 study by Buchanan et al. published in Elsevier's Complementary Therapies in Medicine journal, an outlet that one might guess would be sympathetic to the claims of iridologists, Examine the ability of both a trained investigator and a computational expert system, designed using criteria specified by iridologists, uh, it tested the ability of both to detect coronary heart disease, ulcerative colitis, asthma, and psoriasis. Sample sizes for each group were between 25 and 30 patients, and there was also a control, and the results for both the investigator and the expert system were indistinguishable from chance. So iridology is based on the idea that an individual's iris changes over time, and that these changes relate directly to specific health conditions. But before we attempted to answer the question, does the iris provide clues to a person's health, uh, perhaps we should have asked whether the iris changes at all. So, like, people's eye color will change over time, right? Like, people's eye color will often fade as they get older and darken as, you know, from, like, infancy to childhood. Sure. Color does come into it. It's a, it's typically a contrast between different colors in the iris, but the the primary method used to diagnose is typically the inclusions, the yeah. striations in the iris. 
So generally, the iris is a fairly stable feature. It's sufficiently stable, in fact, that it is used for biometric identification, uh, as seen in the 1993 classic Demolition Man. Let's get this over quickly. I assume that uh, Apple went with fingerprint over retinal scan for their biometrics on their iPhones because they figured that if Wesley Snipes was willing to gouge out your eye to unlock your phone, it's probably better for all involved if he just chops off a finger. Uh, presumably, uh, Apple and Microsoft figured uh, facial recognition was more secure. Uh, unfortunately, while that may protect you against Wesley Snipes, it's no protection against Nicolas Cage. Uh, what was I talking about? <laughs> Face off. Right. There, there is uh, no evidence to suggest that environmental or systemic health factors uh, play a significant role in, cha- in changes to the iris or that the striations in the iris change uh, over time as a result of medical conditions, uh, aside from, you know, the odd screwdriver in the eyeball or something. What about the Three Stooges hypothesis? While some studies uh, suggest that, uh, as Ashlyn mentioned, uh, aging can affect the iris template, as it's called. Um, so not just the color, but uh, striations in the in the iris, with minor changes occurring over a period of several years that may serve to confuse retinal scanners. A 2013 paper published in PLOS One disputes these findings, concluding, quote, Empirical investigation suggests that the rejections, this is rejections in retinal scanners, are caused by improper capture that leads to occlusion, rotation, blurring, illumination, and pupil dilation or constriction in iris images. So basically, the the fact that uh, different scans taken at different times don't uh, come up as matches is not evidence that the iris has changed, but merely that, you know, that the scans were different. So not only does iridology not work, it seems unlikely that it could work. So uh, what's the harm? Well, uh, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, it's the harm that comes along with basically every pseudoscientific and medical intervention. Uh, you know, some medical interventions or diagnostic techniques can cause actual harm. I'm looking at you, chelation. Uh, but uh, in this case, uh, I'll just give uh, Ernst the last word here. Quote, Might iridology be doing any harm? Waste of money and time are two obvious undesired effects. The possibility of false positive diagnoses, i.e. diagnosing and subsequently treating conditions that do not exist in the first place, seem more serious. The problem, however, might be false negative diagnoses. Someone might feel unwell, go to an iridologist, and be given a clean bill of health. Subsequently, this person could be found to have a serious disease. In such cases, valuable time for early treatment, and indeed lives, can be lost through the use of iridology. What are we going to be talking about next month, Ashlyn? As she gives me the deer in the headlights. So last month you had your little panic attack when you realized 20 minutes before the end that you were going to have to answer this. I did not get that warning. But I, I, had, a, I had a plan. So next month we are going to do another quiz show show. Yay! We haven't played a game in a long time, so I think we should uh, go ahead and entertain each other with quizzes on who knows what. Maybe you'll both do feng shui again. <laughs> I, when I saw all of the different like remedies, I was actually thinking to myself, I should save these for a quiz. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what does walnut solve? Right. And when this show drops, uh, listeners will have a little bit of time before we record the next one. So if you have ideas for what you would like us to quiz each other about, feel free to write in. We would appreciate the inspiration. (laughs) 
We would also appreciate a review. If you have a few moments to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or, or I don't I think Google Play still doesn't. Have they added reviews finally? No For idea. Quite a while they were missing them. Uh, so if you have a few moments to uh, recommend us to a friend or to especially write a review on Apple Podcasts, because that really is where most people listen to podcasts right like now. Just clicking the five stars and writing good job, guys, like will get us in front of so many more people. Clicking the five stars right in your podcast player is great, but honestly, just writing good job or something <laughs> of that nature yeah. like actually boosts it way more. <laughs> so please, if you if you have a few seconds, we'd uh, we'd really appreciate it, especially now that we have these fancy new mics. Hopefully I can make this edit work so it does actually <laughs> sound good. So thanks for joining me tonight, folks. Good night. Good night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Ashlyn Noble and Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. Some examples of pseudoscience that we have talked about in the past include parapsychology. Um, pa- uh, 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 what? <laughs> <laughs> we did a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's the. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I took a very serious blow to the head earlier, so <laughs> it was not Laura. <laughs> uh, so, uh, pardon me. Um, Cryptozoology, that's the one I was looking for. I'm like, parazoology? <laughs> no, nope, that's not it. He's yeah. got his headphones on. I know, I was going to make a headphones joke too. <laughs> I, need, I need to monitor the levels. I'm engineering. I need to monitor the levels. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> if chi is everything and chi is not flowing appropriately, then I guess it's always the chi's problem. <laughs> just staring deeply into its eyes as it snapped its leg oh. like a twig oh that's very upsetting awful gem <laughs> don't well don't blame me blame ignyas you didn't need to describe it nip's child presented five leading irrig- uh. lauren is just over here dying at the name nip's child <laughs> and doesn't have a microphone to express her glee <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's Nip's child with a silent K. I assume silent at the beginning. Oh. Knip's child. I watched Face Off so many times. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess maybe like I shouldn't blame Nicolas Cage. I mean, he was the villain, but he was also like the victim in that situation, right? I'm sorry, I shot you, Daddy. <laughs> That's my oh wait, I'm having a conversation with somebody who's not mic'd right now. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody needs to know that I know this film back Yeah, nobody needs to know how much Lauren knows about Face Off. I love Nicolas Cage. Uh, he's really good in the new Spider-Man film. The whole cast is fantastic. Nick Cage is, I think, honestly, a pretty good actor. He needs a good director, though. I also recommend, like, Mandy is a really good horror film. It's got- I mean, effed up. No. I like National Treasure, so I have no taste. Right? So... <laughs>
<laughs> you don't need to convince a, an, me. an attribute that you share with Nicolas Cage. Yes. <laughs> Moonstruck, bitches. <laughs> Ooh, the man has an Oscar. Uh, he, he also has castles <laughs> and taxes to pay. Uh, what was I talking about? <laughs> face off. Oh. We're on the face off podcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I am always prepared to cuddle.